Welcome to the Afgeeks Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bakari Spells, with Adrian, and we have a special guest here today. Um, John, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? What's going on, guys? John Harder Phyllis here. Really excited to have you to be brought on. Really excited we got to meet each other and talk a little bit uh, before we got on air. Uh, but I'm a tw- I'm a 21 just recently turned 21 year old uh, podcaster slash basketball coach out of out of New York City. I've been coaching at Xavier High School for the last three years since I graduated from there. And now, uh, most recently, in the last year, I've, I've started up uh, my own 200-episode podcast called Gen Z Hoops. That's really changed everything for me in terms of how I see the game and how I'm able to enjoy it. Because um, basketball's always been a big thing for me, but having an avenue to express that has been huge. Yep, so anything, whether it's basketball-related, I've had a couple uh, pretty cool internships revolving around the game and just really, um, being that being my passion, uh, trying to just take it one, one day at a time and, and absorbing that and, and living out the dream uh, every, every, literally, literally every single day. Okay, so you said you went to school there, right? So did so did you play basketball while you were in high school? I did. So that's actually a really funny story, and and it's funny now. People ask me about high school days, so I appreciate you bringing that up. But I actually used to be really, really bad. Um, I started playing really late. I, I I'm six four. My dad's five eight. So like mm-hmm. really basketball or like that that's never really ran in the family. Uh, but I was 13 years old. Coach like, oh, you know, you should start playing basketball. I'm like, okay, let me see if I if I like this thing. And I ended up falling in love with it. But uh, really bad at the start. I got cut from the freshman JV and varsity team at Xavier as a freshman, sophomore, and junior. Uh, but then I ended up making it as a senior, which was obviously a really big thing for me. So that senior year was was huge for me. I got to go to Greece a few times to play over there in like a, in a in a league over there, which was a lot of fun. Um, because I got, I got a lot better really really fast. But then at the conclusion of that, it was obviously the decision: of, do I play in college, or do I or do I come back and coach? And after after uh, playing in college, it didn't work out. And Coach McGrain from Xavier offered me the job. I, I jumped at it, and I've been loving it ever since, uh, coaching the freshman team. And then this coming year, um, with COVID, everything shaking things up, I'm not sure what I'll be doing, whether it's the freshman team, whether it's a, a different team, or whether it's two teams. Uh, whatever Coach McGrain needs me to do, I'm going to uh, jump on it full force because I just love being around the program. You ever thought about doing the travel ball stuff, man, AAU? So I have. Um, I, I've actually – that's a big thing. I mean, it's a big step for the show or the, or the, or the brand I'm trying to build is doing some with Gen Z hoops in that, in that regard. I definitely need to up my, my, you know, my, my physical presence, which this last month, right now we're talking on, in July, June was the first time I actually was coaching in person for, for a while. We did a couple workouts here and there with small groups of kids. But uh, the month of June was really my first time doing like big camps, traveling, doing basketball. And it was a shock to me, like, like the, the the opportunities and, and the potential for the show right now, or really just for everything I'm doing right now in this in this in person format is endless. And I've been without that for the last 15, 16 months. So getting back to it now, I'm really starting to think of what I could do in the in the AAU space. But before this, really, I, I never really got into it because I didn't play too much of it when I was when I was that age. So I didn't really have as many connections in the playing sphere as I do now in the business side of things. Maybe with all the G League and NBA connections that I have through the podcast, I'm still working on it in the, in the New York AAU field with. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff with 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 uh, zero gravity basketball and, and rising stars and all that stuff with with the fifth, sixth, seventh grade teams and even older, right? Even with the guys I'm, I'm working with in high school, that'd be awesome too. Um, I, I do a couple of things with Super League Athletic Academy and some organizations like that that have their own travel teams. I've I've helped out a little bit, but I definitely that's definitely something I, I really want to jump into a lot more now as I'm getting older and we're starting to open back up again. <laughs> man, you said older. You're 21 years old. You're making me feel hella old, man. Shit, yeah, he, that's an hour sad to say. Shit, you about to go out. I'm sipping on coffee, trying to stay up through the podcast. Um, so how you has your coaching and your background, even though you said it's short, has it helped you transition to this podcast space where basketball is the subject matter? Huge. Yeah, huge. So it's funny because I never was a like I, I always had a lisp when I was younger. I always talk fast, and that's something that's been really. Uh, you believe it or not, I've actually slowed down since I first started because I'm just so excited to to speak about this stuff, right? Uh, but I've actually slowed down since first starting this thing. Uh, 
but speaking was never really my forte. It was not, I was never really comfortable getting up in front of people and, and talking and, and, and really getting excited. I, mean, I was always like someone that would get excited over things and passionate about something and obsessed with one thing, the way, the way it's basketball. When I was younger, maybe I'd get obsessed over something else. Um, but really what, what, what coaching taught me to do was maybe putting more of a leadership role for, you know, something where I, I couldn't really escape from it. I was responsible for 15 freshmen, 15, 14 year olds that, you know, they, they, like they're, they're just getting into this whole high school scene. They're, they're really just for the first time, um, realizing what it's like to be responsible to take all this stuff in firsthand, and I was, and that that really forced me to mature myself, right? I mean, it's funny everyone always is shocked. I'm 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 only 20, 21 years old because I've been kind of forced to pretend, quote unquote, to to act like a 30, 35, 40 year old man the way all the other coaches there, everyone's way older than me. I've have to try to to mimic that in, in, in setting a positive example for the young men and how to act as as they mature and, and go through this process. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome, bro. Um, shit, man, you, you do speak fast, but I just thought it was the New York in you and we probably sound a lot slower to you just because, you know, the Southern draw, <laughs> but, um, yeah, man. So as far as the podcasting space, you said you about, you said 200 episodes almost. So we're actually, um, so it's a, I'm on episode, today was episode 183 with Jason Curry. Um, so yeah, that was 183, but, but that's not including the episodes from big fellas basketball, which is the fifth, first 50 episodes of season one. So today's actually the 180, the 183rd day of the year in 2021. Cause ever since January 1st was episode one, I've done one episode since then. And just keeping that connection, that, uh, that, that, that momentum going in that daily content. So 50 days from now will be at however many, it'll keep on going up and up and up and up until we get to what'll be at the end of the month, at the end of the year, 365 plus 50. So 415 episodes total. Uh, which I'm really excited about because it's just, it's really just that, that whole vein of just making content as much as possible. Everyone always asks me, do you make a lot of money on the show? You do you have sponsorships, how are your views looking? I'm just making content and, and people that, that, that want to listen to it, listen to it. And, and people in the industry, from what I'm hearing, a lot of coaches are listening to it. And that's kind of what I care about the most is that people that are, are, are enjoying this content are the ones listening to it. Not so much the number or, or anything like that. But the, the, the number of content I've made is something that's really inspired me because if you had told me that at the start I would have done this, I, would, I wouldn't have believed you because it was, it, it was so difficult to get to you know five episodes at the beginning that, that now it's kind of become just who I am is that today's, oh, today I'm going to post another episode just like I did yesterday and just like I will tomorrow. Um, so it's just been a constant process in, uh, in keeping that, my, 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 you know, keep, keep staying disciplined and, and keeping that consistency. Um, I do have a question for you with being a coach because uh, also played in high school and everything. I'm, I'm, both of my parents are coaches, and I was just speaking to um, my dad today about it. And so what do you think as a coach, what do you think about drop coverages? That, that's actually I've never been asked this question before. I always have to bring it up because the Bucks run a lot. I, I'm I'm a Greek American, huge Giannis fan. I've met him a bunch of times, and his brothers are you know they, they're one of the best families on the planet in terms of just like their just their character and stuff. But I'm always I'm, I'm obviously everyone knows me as the Greek guy, the Giannis fan, all that stuff. And the biggest thing I talk about when people ask me about the Bucks is their drop coverage because they run it all the time. Uh, at the and and obviously at the NBA it's a whole different discussion because maybe drop coverage isn't effective. And in high school maybe a lot of times it's the only coverage because. Obviously, not everyone is as good of a shooter, especially at the freshman level, let's say, as they are at the NBA level, where guys in the NBA level are hitting, you know, good shooters are hitting 40% from three. At the high school level, a good shooter maybe isn't hitting that much because it's, it's just they're obviously not nearly as good. Even though the line's a lot shorter, they're just not as good at, at, at hitting contested threes. So yeah, drop coverage is definitely something that you'll see a lot more at the high school levels and, and maybe even the college levels. But it's definitely, I, I think, something it's just, it's just the most basic way to play defense. And it, it's it's tried and true because if you're, if you're running against, especially when you're running against a team that you haven't seen them play yet, 
you don't need to be switching everything. I feel like a lot of times in the NBA, especially, I mean, the NBA has become so pick and roll heavy and so switch heavy. You'll see teams just run the pick and roll nonstop and switch nonstop no matter what. And obviously, at that point, they've scouted. They, they know what every team's strengths are. Almost all teams, especially in the playoffs, are good shooting teams because you need to be a good shooting team to make it to make it in the playoffs. Um, but in, in the high school levels, you'll see, I feel like a lot of times people switch unnecessarily where you won't even get hit on the screen and people will still switch just instinctively. And everyone needs a switch, 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 switch. I, I think it's it, a lot of times fighting through the screen, coming in drop coverage, especially at the high school levels, and we'll, we'll run all the time at the freshman level is much better. If a guy's killing us over the, and just we're going onto the screen, and they keep on killing us, then we can adjust. Like for example, in the Knicks series, I was kind of upset that they were running drop coverage so much against Trey Young because he was getting whatever he wanted. He was turning the corner on every ball screen, un, un, unopposed to the rim. Even though the Sixers lost their series with him, the, the games they won, games two and games three, I was actually at game three. Actually, I'm sorry, game two in Philly. One of my really good friends, the host of Gen Z 76ers, Chris D'Ambrosio, invited me down. And I was I was in, I was watching the game live. I was in shock because the Sixers did exactly what I thought the Knicks would do in actually jamming in Trey Young and doubling him or or trapping him or even just getting, going over screens on the pick and roll, making life hard for him. Against the Knicks, I feel like he just turned the corner every time and was able to shoot his floater, able to get other guys involved, take the big out of, out of, out of the, like really challenge the big, um, who's really on an island that right, right on there in drop coverage. So it really, I think depends on definitely the league and the scouting and the scouting that you're doing and which team you're playing. But uh, drop coverage definitely has a place in the, in the league and at lower levels, it, it really is the most basic way to play defense and a lot, a lot of times the most effective. Yeah, I agree there. Um, so knowing this, how do you work with your athletes in regards to that? Because I have a, like I said, my parents are coaches. I have another little brother who's currently about to be a freshman. So what, the main part of his game that I've been working on with and that my um, parents have been working on him with is his mid-range jumper because of the drop cover sets that we already know he's going to face. And with a lot of other athletes at the high school level, a lot of you don't really see a lot of high school kids stopping and popping that mid-range shot or stopping popping right in front of the three-point line or anything like that. So we've been kind of working with him already to adjust and be ready for drop coverage situations so that when he sees it, now that he's about to go into high school, that he's ready. So now that, so that's what my question comes in that since you're a freshman coach, how do you get your athletes prepared for that situation? Definitely. So, well, it, it, it kind of goes both ways, right? Whether it's the offensive side of the ball, defense side of the ball and how we're going to play it. If it's offensively, uh, we're going up against drop coverage. We, I mean, we teach us this all the time. With the freshman level, it's incredibly difficult because and it's frustrating as a coach, but obviously you know that they're, they're young kids and they're just picking these concepts up is really setting all your screens shoulder to shoulder. And if that's happening, right, you really have to, as a defender, do your part to fight over them. And as an offensive player, uh, do your part to, to obviously keep it shoulder to shoulder and go in a straight line towards the basket. A lot of guys at the, at, the young, at the younger levels, you'll see them banana cutting where they come out wide, and that just gives the defense time to recover. If you're going through with a straight line, point A to point B, from the point of the screen in a straight line to the basket, it's really almost impossible to stop because you're really coming off that screen. Your defender's now behind you. They're out of the play completely. They're not guarding anybody. And it's a two-on-one with the big man. And then obviously you have you have help, you have help now converging. You have all this stuff happening. So the biggest thing as an offensive player, number one to teach is to come off the screen shoulder to shoulder and come off hard in a straight line towards the basket. Once you have that down, it's really about just don't stop, right? Like if you, you take go, well, you, we, you'll hear a lot of coaches or you'll hear me saying a lot of times, keep going till the defense stops you. 
Once the defense plays up and guards you, now, okay, you have the little dump-off pass to your big. You have the kick out to the corner. But don't make a move. Don't t- why, why take a shot from the free-throw line when you can go, go all the way for a layup? Or why take a shot from the free-throw line when you can engage your defender more and now make an easier pass for your teammate? Why pass from the free-throw line, let's say, when you can engage your defender and pass from close, right? There's a million different things you could do. Um, but I think the, the first part is teaching players to not be afraid of going to the paint. A lot of t- times maybe some smaller guards will feel that way. And you don't have to pass right when you get off the screen, pass the ball. You know, you have an advantage, take that advantage, take it to the rim, take it to the rim to find a pass, whatever it might be. Um, and good things happen when you go straight line point A to point B. Once you banana cut it and banana curl it, you you really lose all your advantage. And now you now you're just now you're just playing. You you really just wasted five seconds off the shot clock. I'm not sure what it's like um in in your in your guys' state or the states surrounding you guys, but yeah, we don't we have shot have, clocks. Interesting. Okay, cool. So in New York, we actually have a 35-second shot clock through all, out of, all of high school basketball, which is interesting, which is good because having a shot clock, I think, is very important. But also, 35 seconds is forever. The number of time, and even even at our level, where we take obviously much longer than an NBA team to run a possession, you'll see, like very right the same way. Very rarely, NBA teams uh, run into 24-second violations, 35-second violations. Man, those things. It, it you must take it takes a long time to get to that point and honestly sometimes it happens which I, I wish it was a little bit 30 I think is the sweet spot right that's probably best uh, 35 is a little much but we have a, we have a shot clock and you don't want to be you you can't you know you can only run so many pick and rolls you can only run so many actions in a constrained amount of time with a shot clock so you definitely want to make sure you're using the most out of every action you get to take as many advantages as you can um, and be able to play off those advantages so Coming off, coming off one action, taking value in that action to come off it hard, straight line to the basket is super important. Now, as a defensive player, when we're going up against a team, maybe with, without with, uh, that's not not a great shooting team, just saying drop coverage and telling the big to sag off isn't the, isn't the only thing to practice. You have to make sure you're in the right position to where you're guarding somebody. The worst thing a defensive player can do at at, at any level is be in no man's land. You, some might say the worst thing a defender can do is leave their feet. Sure, because now, but at least you contested a shot to begin with or something. Though that, that, that's that's the second worst thing you can do. The worst thing a defender can do is be in no man's land where you're not guarding anybody, where you're not guarding the offensive player. Ball the watching. Player, yeah, you're not guarding the player with the ball. You're not guarding. You're not guarding your man. You're not guarding anybody. A lot of times, what I what I was frustrated with with the Knicks series was I felt like a lot of our bigs were in no man's land. Trey Young comes with a pick and roll. We're not really guarding Trey Young. We're not really guarding our big. We're not, we're not really doing you, you have to commit to something. Normally, the best thing to do is commit to the player with the ball. They're the person that's most dangerous because they can score right now. Um, and you have to trust your help defense to help the helper and come to the back so Clint Capel doesn't get the lob dunk. Same thing at the high school level. Obviously, teaching help the helper is a very tough concept, even for the pros. So at the high school level, it gets very difficult to teach that, hey, you know, you're doing your job, you know, in, in your position with your man, you have to be able to recognize when a player off the ball gets beat. That's difficult. Everyone knows to help the, you know, to be the primary helper where, you know, you're in help position, your teammate gets, gets beat, step in, take a charge, play, you know, like, like get, get a little guarding position, make the right play. That's simple. Everyone knows, okay, you see a guy driving to the rim um, for a layup to get in front of him. That's not hard. What is difficult though, especially at the younger level, but we, uh, we, we do our best to make sure that these, these concepts get taught is to make sure that you're able to recognize when a, a player without the ball is a scoring threat. Um, that that's definitely the biggest thing, and something that in drop coverage you have to be very mindful of because the the, the most dangerous person is the, uh, the one with the ball. But if we if if we have him under control, there's a lot of players without the ball, whether they're shooters in the corner or the guy rolling to the rim, that have to be our top priority. Yeah, 
I have a, there was one part that stood out to me the most was whenever you were talking about a lot of people being scared of contact and why settle for the mid-range jumper when you can get all the way to the basket. So I'm guessing you more, you're more on the analytical side in that regards. Definitely more on the analytical side, but I do see the value actually in the mid-range shot. Uh, my point in saying that was that obviously you definitely want to lay up over anything, um, especially, I mean, yes. like at the NBA, right? Everyone wants threes. You definitely want to lay up. Um, at the high, but the, the big thing is right, be, not being afraid to take contact, not being afraid to get into the paint because that's where good things happen. No matter what happens, you want paint touches. No, no, no coach ever would say we don't want to get paint touches. We want to just circle everything on the perimeter because you're never going to get open threes if you don't get paint touches, right? Everything comes. The, the most Absolutely. dangerous uh, team, the ball can ever be, spot the ball can ever be is right next to the rim, whether you're guarded or not. If you, wherever you are, the ball's most dangerous right next to the rim on the right block with a clear path to the basket, right? So if we can get there, even if we can't score because we're guarded, we can pass out to an open three. Uh, we can pass out to a mid-range shot. Um, Chris Paul, just a few nights ago, um, had, had one of his career games, you know, as, as a mid-range, he, he's, he's a killer from the mid-range. Um, it's not so much that it's, it's, uh, the mid-range is maybe the best shot for isolation plays, the best shot for, for you know, star play. That, that's that, almost every game-winning shot you've ever seen, right? It's, uh, the vast majority of them, are, they're not layups or threes, they're mid-range jump shots. Why? Because those are the shots that you get in those situations. The same way that there's shots maybe that, that, that if you're a good mid-range shooter, you take those shots. If you're, if you're Kawhi Leonard's a killer from the mid-range, Kobe was a killer, MJ, all those guys are killers from the mid-range. It's not that, obviously, you'd rather get a layup because you're, you'll make more of those. But if you're a good mid-range shooter, take mid-range jump shots. Um, analytics are definitely a, a great part of today's game, and I'm, a, and I'm a huge proponent of them, and I, I use them a lot in everything I'm doing. Um, I definitely do see – I think people overreact in saying that no mid-range jump shots. Never, we're, ne we're never taking a mid-range jump shot. Um, there is a value. Deep twos, definitely understand that. That's obviously you'd rather get a three in that situation. But the mid-range I don't think is dead in any capacity. You, it, there is a need to be have that in-between game, to have that option, because sometimes you're going to come off that pick and roll – and the big's going to stay in the paint, but you, maybe you can't challenge that. Or maybe they're, they're, right, there's two guys or something, and you're going to need that mid-range pull-up jump shot. You're, you're, you're going to need that. So to say that, uh, that, that, that the analytics are saying to never do that, I think that's a mistake. I think the better way to approach it is that we'd rather get all the way into the paint, get that paint touch, because now we're opening up more things for our offense and we're more effective there. But I, I definitely do think that sometimes if the media – or a lot of basketball pundits will overreact and say that the mid-range jump shot is dead, when in fact we've evolved to say that it's not maybe as valuable as it used to be, but it's definitely not dead. The same way with the center position. Um, there's a use for everything in basketball. Nothing's really ever dead, um, but some things definitely do uh, get pushed to the, you know, get, get a little bit antiquated and or um, replaced by things like the three-point shot because it's, it is the better shot analytically to get, to, to get that extra point. Uh, but I, I think there definitely is a value to everything. And it just really depends on the coverage. If you right, in, in drop coverage, we do want to get, we do want to try to, to if, if we really can't get to them, let's say, I, I know I said to, to challenge the, the big man, maybe you can't, maybe, right. We, we do want to teach that to do that because as you get up in level, you're going to need to at least attempt to do that. Maybe you really can't hit the mid range jump shot. Um, but we, we do whatever you want to teach getting into the paint because that it does open up so much more for the offense. Um, it really all depends on personnel and that, that, that really is what uh, the context is really what changes the game. Yeah, I mean, Trey Young was definitely doing his thing in that last series, and I think everything you said is really enlightening. Um, can you break it down a little bit more for the layman's turn, man? You and Harrison both coached before. Me, I've never coached in my life. I'm just a casual fan of the game. So when you say drop coverage for our casual listeners, just explain what that is. So I, I it's, it's an interesting question because I, I mean, I, you know, I think 
obviously at the high school level, you don't have as many analytics as you would at a, at a higher level. I, I can go on basketball reference right now and pull up every NBA advanced statistic you could ever even think of. Um, at the high school level, I, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm quote unquote only coaching freshman basketball. Before before I started doing that, they never the only stats we keep is points. You know the, the points in the in the actual in the book, right? The one and the points and fouls. That's really all they keep track of. There's no rebounds. There's no assists. There's no anything like that. Um, I started last year for the first time. I'm um, actually not last last year. We had the COVID year. The year before that, my second year coaching, I had a cheat sheet of all. I basically would keep all the lineup data. So every so at the start of the game, well, I I, I would do this most mostly after games because during games I'd be coaching and talking to players on the sideline. But after games, I, I actually also recorded games. I was, you know, that never really happens at the freshman level either. Um, but I recorded all our games all up on YouTube, and I would after the game go and track everything that happened. Okay, which which five players started the game at the six minute mark? We subbed out our point guard. We put this guy in. Let, let's see how this, you know, then the score was seven to two. Let's chart that and see how that goes over the course of 15, 20 games going to the playoffs. We had a better idea of where our team stood lineup wise or, or, or who or which, which two man lineups, which three man lineups, which five man lineups work together the best. Um, and obviously lineup data isn't, is never an exact science because there's so many more factors at the high school level. I could never even begin to chart like the opponents were playing and stuff like that. But I definitely did try my best to, in order to keep everything in, organized and in perspective, but it's definitely, I, th- I think super important um to whether your team's super talented or not um to look at the analytics and, and thinking you know what what can we do with this um what, what can we improve um no matter how talented a team is there's always a way, a, a way to find improvement there's always i mean whether it's with shot charts where, where we where we shooting the best from right talent can only take you so far let's figure out how to use that talent as effectively as possible so if we have a team that you know we have one guy we had, we had a player last year he was money from the corners right how do we organ diagram our plays or set him up to get the corner shots that he's so good at hitting. Um, if we just looked at him as saying he's a good shooter, well, okay, he's a good shooter from everywhere, but he's a great shooter from the corner. How do we get him in the corner more? Because he's great or, may, or he's good or maybe average from the wings or the top of the key. We got to get him in the corner because if we just look at him as, okay, he's a good shooter, that, that, that's his, ta- his talent is shooting. Okay, we'll try to get him open shots. That's not specific enough. We need to get him corner shots because that's where he's great. And I think, and, and there's a million other examples of that as to how we can maximize all our players' effectiveness on the court. Oh no, I had a, um, I just didn't want to get too far away from his previous statement before you asked that um question a while ago. I had two questions in regards to that because he was talking about how going to the paint opens up so many things, and so I. Cause I'm a big, I'm a big fan. I, I like the analytical side, but I'm also a big fan of the mid range shot. Cause that's where I differ in regards to. I think the mid range shot actually opens up a lot more in the game than people actually realize. So when you're coming off that screen, you stop on the mid range. Like you said, you can get in the paint, and that can open up a lot more. Dishing out to the the big, dishing out to the three out from there. But if you stop and pop that mid range, and because the big is playing drop coverage, he's sagging off. You hit a couple shots right there. You force the big to start stepping up instead. Now you have that lob threat. Somebody from the corner rotates over to stop the lob. Now you have that kick out right there, and it opens up so many more things because you have the defense thinking more other than just a dot him in the um, paint and then kick out for a three. I think the mid range shot actually opens up more than people are realizing, and that's why I think. People like Chris Paul, if we were like you brought up his game. Whenever I was watching his game, he, they you saw they brought they had to bring Boogie in because they were struggling with bigs, and you saw that Boogie was just like putty in Chris Paul's hands. There were certain situations where Boogie didn't know whether Chris Paul was gonna pull up for the midi or if he was gonna drop back and throw the lob 
or like their, all their rotations were messed up because there were so many options available because Chris Paul was having such a legendary night. They didn't know how to react. So that's why I think the mid-range game actually opens up more than people realize. But my main point was um, I was listening to one of JJ Reddick's podcasts. I don't know if you listen to JJ Reddick's podcast, but he was talking about um, the analytical side. And he was talking about when he was with the 76ers and how he used to love the take the pump fake, step in, take one, two dribbles, shoot the 15-footer. He said that was like his bread and butter. He loved that shot a lot. However, when the analytical side taught him, instead of taking those two dribbles up for a two-dribble pull-up to sidestep, do the pump fake, take a dribble and sidestep and shoot the corner three, instead that the analytical side brings in, that says that three is way more, that corner three is way more than that mid-range jumper. And so I see it both ways. I like analytics, but I'm a big um, fan of the mid-range shot. So my whole thing, what do you think about that J.J. Reddick um, situation? Do you, do you agree with the whole sidestep is better than the two-dribble 15-footer? So it's funny. So I never watched that show in its entirety, but I did see a clip of it on Instagram because Duncan Robinson was involved in that too, right? I think he was either in, on that episode or maybe they had a different discussion later on, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Duncan, I remember because I remember Duncan Robinson and JJ Reddy talking about. It. I couldn't remember if that's from the show or if that was just a, a whole different uh, interaction. But I, when I heard that, I thought it was really interesting because, right at, at the high school level, all we talk about is you know pump fake, one dribble pull. Right, that's just I mean that's in every shooting drill on the planet. Right, that's the progression is you take a standstill jump shot. Now let's go to one dribble pull up. Now let's do this, and that, that's always how you progress through every single drill. And I remember Duncan Robinson mm-hmm. saying how that's at, when he was at Michigan. Right, we ended up getting uh, right, right before going to the league, and he ended up getting called up from from the, from uh, the D three level. Um, all they would tell him was, "Okay, one one drill pull up. That's that's just what you do. And that's what he did." The moment he got to the league, they said, "Okay, no, we're cutting that out. You're you're taking a side step three. A lot of Duncan. I mean, and, and the reason why I definitely see the value in the mid range shot. And I do think that's something. You know, depending on your game, maybe the you know maybe you're not as good of a you're maybe not as good off this off off, off, the, off the side step, which I, I think maybe you have to get better at. But you know, with the way the NBA is going, but let's say you're not as good, the one the one drill pull up is always going to be there. Two points is two points. That's uh, uh, no real issue with that. But I do think the side step is definitely far superior. And you're seeing right the same way JJ Redick and and, and Doug Robinson are talking about how they're doing that now. Everyone, you have to do that to evolve because I, what I've noticed a lot about Duncan Robinson, he's obviously a great catch and shoot threat, um, but he's also very good right off 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 the, uh, but not not so much off the pick and roll, but more so off the dribble handoff, um, which which you know, with the way he plays off Bam and Abayo, it sometimes looks similar because the Heat actually, interestingly enough, will run a, a sort of double dribble handoff where he'll pitch it to um, to um, Bam at a buy at the top of the key, run off for a dribble handoff. He gets closed out. He'll throw it back and come off the same way again. All that footwork is that sort of sidestep. Um, the same way, just in any other out of bounds sets. A lot of times, Duncan Robinson's a, a, right. I, I, out of all the players in the league, Duncan Robinson's probably the scariest player on a baseline out of bounds or a sideline out of bounds because of his footwork and getting open an open three point shot. Um, you need that sidestep in your game to get those shots. I mean, if you really watch any Duncan Robinson game where he'll have five or six threes, a lot of those shots are him coming off. Um, so going, moving to his side and 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 running that three point arc. Um, well, it's something that sure you might have heard it. You know, might you, there's definitely footage of Ray Allen doing it and stuff. Um, it's definitely evolved so much because moving off the ball has become such an important thing in the league today. Because of I mean, you you really need to, and and circling three point lines becomes just such a big thing. I think the side steps are so valuable, and, and it's great you brought that up because I actually did see that that clip on Instagram that one time with them talking about it. And I was like, wow, you know, it's really interesting how. That's that's a direct correlation to how analysts can fix things because you really see it in saying, okay, the the sidestep three points per possession wise is so much more valuable instead of taking that one dribble pull up, 
right? It's probably faster, right? You get the extra point, take that little sidestep. And, and, and if, you're able, if you're able to learn how to do that, which obviously guys at that level are, are drilling it every day, uh, you'll start knocking them down and seeing better results on the court. Yeah, so yeah, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you went to detail that. I just I just wanted to get your opinion on it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like I said, I'm a I'm a big um fan of the mid range shot, but I do understand uh, a player like JJ Redick or a player like Duncan Robinson, who's an elite three point shooter, to focus more on the three point shot. I don't think that's a shot that more players like like how you brought up like how Kawhi and Chris Paul are mid range killers. I don't think that's a shot I necessarily want to see them take because they're not at the upper, you know, upper 30s, low 40s percent from the three-point line. So somebody like that, I would prefer them. So I guess it goes based off your personnel. This thing I'm taking away, I mean, everyone's talking about Chris Paul. I am so excited <laughs> how DeAndre Aiden's playing. Um, just watching come out, I mean, he's definitely been someone that I've really been rooting for because of, I mean, obviously being a, the same draft class as Luka Doncic and now with Trey Young playing great this 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 playoffs. I mean, Trey Young had a great first playoff series. DeAndre Aiden was coming to his own, but not you know not not as as seriously as he did against Nikola Jokic in the second round. So, I mean, I definitely did feel for him. I was like, you know what, this guy's working hard. It sometimes takes bigs a little bit longer to develop in the league. We've seen that happen time after time with bigs taking a little bit longer in most cases. Um, but he's finally showing out, and it, it's really impressive to see that. Um, that that's I think a big part of why the Suns are so good this year. But obviously, of course, too, it's the addition of Chris Paul, it's Devin Booker stepping up, and you know, having those 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 Kobe esque moments where he's 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 having forty in the playoffs and he's he's putting up games like that. Um, the, the Suns team is definitely a lot of fun, and I I mean I I I do have a little bit of bias to. I mean I I I'm a huge fan of the Suns and the way they play, but I do have a little bias towards the Clippers, being that I worked for Kawhi Leonard's energy drink company for the last ten months, um, having concluded that internship about in in May. It was a lot of fun doing that, being around just just obviously Kawhi and his bit and his business and seeing all that stuff unfold and being a you know so it was a very small startup. So being in a team of five six people with the CEO being one of those people, I definitely learned a lot from that experience and I had a, and watched a lot of Kawhi games and had a huge appreciation for him for that reason. Uh, but definitely, I mean, just the Suns, just the way they've been playing, their franchise really needed. I mean, not 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 the not the Clippers didn't, but the Suns really really. Um, have been in the mud for the last few years. I mean, the Clippers have the lob Syria. They, they've been relevant for the last, for really my entire time watching basketball, my entire existence on, on, on this basketball world. Um, but the Suns really have not. They, they weren't relevant since before I started watching basketball with Steve Nash in 2010. So watching them finally get to, you know, to make it to the NBA finals after, after what happened last year, you know, all these 21 seasons back to back, it's really been incredible. And I mean, the series itself went down. I mean, watching Paul George take over for Kawhi was, was great. Seeing him kind of come back into it, into his true form. Um, it's, it's it's unfortunate Kawhi couldn't play. I think that definitely would change the series up, and who knows what would have happened. Um, but the same thing could obviously be said too about Chris Paul and what happened with him in games one and two. I mean, a lot a lot of things right change in that regard. Um, and it has been a huge thing thing this season. I, I think the whole talk about an asterisk is ridiculous. The Suns earned where they are the same way that everyone else had injuries. They had their own too, and they also had the same problems with the shortened season. And they were in, like, all all that stuff is true for all these teams. So for any talk of an aspect I think is ridiculous. Both last year with with LeBron and the Lakers, and this year with the Suns and the Bucks and the Hawks, or whoever makes it the, uh, out of the East. Even though I'm obviously hoping it's the Bucks, I do have to um, revision. You know, ma- make sure I mention the Hawks since the series isn't over yet. Um, but definitely, um, really, just just taking aback by just how the, the great basketball we're watching this year, and, and and being able to see all these teams that haven't really been relevant in recent years, or make it to the finals, or you know, win a championship in the in the last fifty years or in their whole existence, it's definitely been fun to watch. Oh, absolutely. I agree there because it's. I've been enjoying this playoff um, run more than I've 
enjoyed a playoff run and probably last like five, six years because it's more so the future is now and seeing these young guns and young bucks come out and really showcase and put the world on notice. Because if you ask the average NBA fan, you ask the average basketball fan, how many Suns games they checked out this year, even though the Suns finished was well, a second, yeah, second in the whole entire conference. You ask them how many games they've watched. It's probably not too many half people, how many Hawks games they've watched, how many games of so-and-so team. And now you're starting to see them, like they're putting the world on notice. So I think it's, I think it's beautiful because they have to, people are have to wake up to see that these young guns are about to take over and see that the league's in good hands. All these people like LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, everybody that they know and that they're used to, they're they're in their 30s now. So within the next few years, next five, six years, they're, we're not going to see them anymore. So it's good to see that the league's in good hands in regards to them and everything. I also have another question because I want to see this from a um, coach's standpoint because – um, I had a series. I had a um, segment when I was talking about on a, a previous episode when I was breaking down like certain things. That I like. I was like, okay, I like the jokes and everything. Jokes get off everything. I made some jokes, but the thing, the slander Rudy Gobert gets and how I disagreed with it. I don't know how you feel about it, but I don't agree in the regards to him being um, a fraud because he couldn't guard in the perimeter when he was spoke. Whenever because if you watch the series. Most times he would rotate over, and when he rotated over, they would dot him in the corner. From a coaching perspective, what, would you put the blame on Rudy Gobert, or would you put the blame on the help defender not helping your big out in that situation? I'm happy you brought this up because it's this whole concept of what a, a, a great defensive player is that's really upset me. With I mean, it, it's also relates to how people have been treating Giannis recently. Um, defensive player of the year does not mean. You're a great, you're, like being a great defender does not mean you're great in every aspect of defense or that every, you know, you're a specialist in every aspect. Most defensive players that we've ever seen are not one on one defensive stoppers. Gary Payton might be one of those guys. I'm trying to think, maybe Ron Artest, another one, you know, that are great defensive. You know, you put them on someone, Kawhi Leonard, you put them on someone, they're locking that person down to hold them to 10 points. That's a few, a few defensive yeah. players are, of the years are like that. Most defensive players, especially the big men, defensive player of the years, um, are guys that are great d- team defensive players. Giannis being one of them, Rudy Gobert being another one of them. Rudy Gobert's strength is not guarding someone on one, especially on the perimeter, but even just in general, one on one is not his forte. He's not a, one of those guys. Um, while well, he does do it many times, that, that you know his forte is holding guys to a low, a low point total. Because if it's not really a point total, you know, like a, a big man scoring sixteen versus ten when the whole team's not right. If if someone's you know same, kind of like Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain. Bill Russell never shut down Will Chamberlain. He let him get, you know, he would maybe, he would get his, but the rest of the team wouldn't score. And, you know, that's why Bill Russell always beat Will Chamberlain. Um, in the same concept, it's maybe, you know, t- taking all the way back. I kind of took you guys through 1960s all the way today in terms of just big men and, and, and team defensive players. But I feel, especially with Rudy Gobert, his value as a defensive player and a defensive player of the year. Everyone's saying he should give back his trophies. That's ridiculous. He earned those trophies because he's a great team defensive player. And also those are in the regular season. But regardless, He's very good at, at at that aspect of defense. If elite, maybe one of the best ever. Um, to say that he sh- he has to guard Terrence Mann on the perimeter, that's not what he's good at. Um, now, is that on the help defense? Is that on the coaching staff? Is that on personnel? Is that on the roster buildup? Is that on is that on him for you know maybe he should you know he should be a better perim- uh, defender on the perimeter. I mean, there's a, a lot of different ways to answer that, but I, I feel like we look at that and they get led in saying he's the defensive player of the year. He should stop that. Now, while I do feel that Giannis should be like I might be changing the subject a little bit, but that Giannis should be guarding KD because 
the stats show that he's Giannis is actually one of the best. I think maybe he is even the best. I, I can't remember the stat exactly. Um, one-on-one defender in terms of efficiency and guarding Kevin Durant. He holds KD to like 40-something percent, uh, low 40s. Most guys, you know, are in the 50s, 60s. Tristan Thompson and guys that are in the 70s because they can't guard KD at all. And like they, when they get caught on him on a switch, it's, it's, it's a bucket every time, right? Um, Giannis is one of those guys that holds him in the, in the, in the low 40s. Like, I can't remember exactly the stat. But Giannis does a great job on KD one-on-one. Now, when KD's having an all-time historic night and dropping 50, maybe we should change our coverage. Like Mike Budenholzer is a very stubborn coach. He sticks to his gun. That's, that, that's, the, that's the plan he wanted to go with. That's the plan they went with. Giannis is an all-time great team defensive player. He won defensive player of the year because when he's on the court, the Bucks give up, have, have one of the best defenses in the league, if not the best. When he's off the court this season, they, they, I, they, they, they were one of the worst defensive teams in the league. Um, during the playoffs, they, they were letting up like 114 points per possession, something ridiculous like that. Um, so it's, it, that's it's been over the past like three years. Oh, of course, because because Giannis is such an impactful team defensive. When he's on the court, you literally have the ultimate help defensive play. He can rotate over. He's there in a second. And that's when he gets dunked. That's another thing that bothers me. I mean, I keep on jumping from conversation to conversation. But when it comes to uh, elite defenders getting dunked on, Giannis gets dunked on all the time because he plays in the National Basketball Association with freaks of nature like himself. And he goes up. I've never seen Giannis in my ever dunk away, duck away from a dunk. He always challenges it, which is great because he – Obviously, gets a lot of blocks, but also it comes with getting dunked on a few times. But as a as a competitor, you have to jump to get dunked on. If you have never gotten dunked it, on in your life, you've you've never played competitive basketball. If you've never been crossed over, it's not because you're a great defensive player; it's because you never played competitive basketball. As a great, if you've played competitive basketball, you will get dunked on, and that's what happens to guys like Rudy Gobert and Giannis. They they contest shots, and sometimes it doesn't go your way. Absolutely, I agree with you, and I want to go to a point where that because a lot of people ignore context because they they they're stuck in the now they're in the now era because you look at the preview like we talked about earlier about the previous defense player of the year normally the defense player of the year is a big man award you've had certain guards like obviously in wing players like Sidney Moncrief, Jordan, um, Kawhi and everybody that's won it but for the most part it is a big man award I think a lot of people forget that a lot of those bigs also were dunked on a lot there are lots of clips of people like Dikembe Mutombo, somebody who's supposed to be an all-time great shot blocker, being dunked on. There's clips of Hakeem Olajuwon. Some people say he's one of the greatest defenders of all time, and he's the all-time leader in blocks. There's plenty of clips of him getting dunked on. There's a lot of clips of all these great defenders getting dunked on because they challenge shots. So not everybody is going to – you're not going to be able to block every shot like you were um, saying in your point. Sometimes you're going to get got. Sometimes you're going to get them, and sometimes you're going to get got. That's just how it is at the end of the day. that shouldn't You shouldn't run away from that challenge just out of fear of getting dunked on, and people shouldn't ignore the context of, yes, he contested or deterred the previous five shots, but that doesn't matter anymore because he got dunked on the sixth time. So the previous five don't matter anymore because the narrative they're going to run with was he got dunked on, so he can't guard them. So uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, I, I see why Rudy Gobert got the defense player. I mean, I don't know how you feel. I feel like Ben Simmons should. Got, I, I'm a big fan of Ben Simmons, even through all the slander he's getting right now. I'm still a big fan of Ben Simmons for what he brings defensively. And I still he, he would have probably been mine because I feel like with this perimeter oriented game nowadays that we should move more towards yeah the bigs are amazing and no disrespect or take anything away from them because they're like somebody like Rudy Gobert who's an all-time great defender but 
I think that we need to put more emphasis on the perimeter as well because somebody that's guarding, the point guard has the ball in their hand 90% of the time. These wing players have the ball in their hand the majority of the time. Like whoever the star is, they're usually on the wing or on the a guard position. So a perimeter defender having to worry about that night in, night out, to me, that's a that's a bigger that's a bigger defensive impact than somebody that's protecting the rim. Even though the rim protection is important, definitely, I definitely agree with that. So and I want it's yeah, no, that, I I think that that's definitely the way. I mean, it's the way the game's going, the way the game's changing, and um, whether it's with Ben Simmons, not specifically. I mean, I I really don't really know too much about that to have a, have a, a set opinion on who the defensive player of the year this year should have been. I mean, whether it's Ben Simmons or him, and obviously Ben Simmons has gotten a lot of hate recently about about maybe some non-defensive stuff, but still, nonetheless, uh, he's in the media for all the wrong reasons now. Um, possibly becoming a member of the Shanghai Sharks next year. We'll see what happens there. Um, yeah, but, hey, but, everybody's making those jokes. <laughs> but, yeah, but in all seriousness, I definitely do see the value in a lot of proven-oriented um, defense players, especially in this year's NBA, in, in this current NBA. Now, while the b- bigs have always anchored defenses, whether it's uh, in the paint or obviously in the perimeter, and maybe. Bigs do do a, I mean, whether it's in pick and roll coverage. I'm not. I'm not really sure exactly how how things will progress, but we, we should definitely. I mean, I, I think you're, you are right in that we should definitely see some more um, perimeter oriented players winning Defensive Player of the Year. Guys like maybe even s- some forwards that can play one through five. Those are the guys maybe like Draymond Green that have been shown to be most valuable in recent years. And I think we'll start seeing a trend of that being guys that that, that, that are in contention for that award uh, in years to come. Yeah, hopefully we do. Hopefully we do. And like I said, we all know historically it's been a big man award and it is, is what it is. But I, I think we need to just start you know, paying more attention. But then again, with the perimeter, just like with the big, if if you have more than one star on your team, like in the Ben Simmons situation, like in the Hawks series, what they did at one point was they put Trey Young in the corner and people were talking. I know Ben Simmons was getting a lot of slander there because they were like, what are you bringing then? You're supposed to be a – yeah, that was one of the games that Trey Young was struggling and they just put Trey Young in the corner. So Ben Simmons is doing his job and Trey Young is struggling and having a tough time scoring. So they put Trey Young in the corner just having him play an off ball and they have an offense run through other people. And then so the Hawks are still scoring. The Hawks are still doing what they do. And for some reason, Ben Simmons was still getting blamed for that because they were like, well, now he like now they're still scoring. So what is he actually bringing defensively? And it's like, well, there's context to that, because if you take Ben, Trey Young isn't struggling just because Trey Young's struggling. People I like I think people try to think too much about, oh, he's just having a bad shooting night. And I'm like, no, Ben Simmons is forcing him to have a bad shooting night. So if you take Ben Simmons off of him and put it on, on the next person that's cook- cooking, then Trey Young starts eating again. And so he kind of can't win in that situation. So um, as a coach, though, how would you have handled the whole uh, Ben Simmons situation? With him at the free throw line or defensively? There's a lot of Um, of situations. There's a lot of situations with that guy. A lot of situations. Yeah. Well, well, the whole – Ben Simmons, peer as a, him entirely, because if you look, because I know you said you're big in analytics and advanced numbers. When you look at the advanced numbers, they were a um, what was it like plus like plus eighteen or something when Ben Simmons was on the court. It was when Ben Simmons went off the court that they yeah. Um, cause I was I was um listening to somebody else talk about it at first. They were talking about it. Uh, I might be wrong in the plus eighteen, but I know it was in the teens. They were plus something in the teens, and when Ben Simmons was on the court. So it's like that shows that he's still bringing value. It might not showcase in the box score, but in 
in terms of bringing value, he's still bringing value on the team through his bad shooting and wo- free throw woes, through his bad um, shooting woes and not refusing to shoot and everything. He's still with everything else he's bringing to the table is showing that he's still valuable. So I saw a lot of people saying to bench him, but when you bench him, you take so much away from the game that you don't even realize. So that's all I wanted to know. How would you have handled it as a coach? Because it's like, do you bench a player that's still, because he's not bringing you enough offensively and he's just destroying you offensively, but in every other way of the game, he's impacting the game outside of scoring to where he's making winning plays. But the scoring-wise, y'all are at a disadvantage. What do you do in that situation? Do you bench him? Do you change your rotation? Like, how, how, do you, how do you go in that situation? I think the biggest thing to do is you have to work with him. Um, one thing I was disappointed about was Doc Rivers actually saying that <laughs> I don't know if he's a top. I, I feel like that was very – I mean, whether he's there next year or not, I mean, I, I don't know what that says about the team. But as a, as a culture, I feel like if I'm a free agent and I hear a coach say that, I mean, I don't know how you want me to play for you if right after I have a bad game – you can go ahead and say that about me. It really doesn't show a lot of strong team building, whether he's there next year or not. I think that was a that, that was one thing that really upset me. I think that's a kind of weak move. And as a coach, something I would obviously never do. That, that's, I think, a big no-no is to, no matter how bad someone plays, I mean, if it's an attitude thing, maybe that's one thing you could maybe talk about someone for. But when it comes to their game and saying they're not an elite player or they're not a good player, I feel like that's something you have to – there's a better way to answer that for sure in any, in any, in any situation. So I was a little bit disheartened when I heard that. Um, but just in, in terms of how a coach would react to it, because I personally would never react to something in that way. Um, but in general, how would you react to maybe a player that if, if you're impacting, I mean, especially at, at, at a younger level, I think it's most important because I'm not really trying to, I mean, at the high school level, we're not, the emphasis is not winning games, it's about building young men and building varsity players and building people with character. We, if we're going to lose every single game as at the freshman level and these guys are going to end up winning a championship on varsity, that's we would do that. That's what matters. A freshman championship obviously don't mean as much as varsity. We're not, we're not trying to win games as much as we are trying to win varsity championships. We're trying to make sure these guys are ready for that level and ready for the college level and preparing them for the next for, for, for what's next. Not so much worrying about winning games at this level. Um, if, if a guy, if That's why, for example, you might see some other programs, Xavier's not one of them, where if a guy's struggling academically or something or some or, or, or they get in trouble or, or something's going wrong, but they're good at basketball, they'll keep them in the program by some way, somehow, right? And those schools obviously maybe get in trouble at the end of the day, but they'll get away with that to start. You'll never see that at Xavier because once that happens, it's, I mean, it, you're, you're, it's, it's on you. We're not trying to win freshman championships or do something like that. We're trying to – you need to know that it's on you and you're accountable for that. I'm getting a little bit off topic, all that to say that if that was happening on the court where someone was not doing what they're supposed to do – I'm I'm not so much worried. We have to work with you. Offense, we have to work with you. That's totally fine. But someone that's a hustler on defense and doing what they need to do to make us a better team and they're doing all the dirty work, which is something that Ben Simmons does, sure, maybe he's scared to take free throws. Maybe he shies away from contact for that reason because he's afraid to go to the line. Um, something that Giannis isn't afraid to do, and he Giannis will greatly, you know, airball 10 free throws in a row before he before he before he refuses to take them. Um, but that not that not being said, if you're if someone's gonna make that much of a positive impact on defense, that's something that even if it doesn't help our team win on the court, it's inspiring to the players on the bench and saying, you know, the guys that help us on defense, they're the guys, you know, you 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 don't need to be able to shoot a lick on offense, you're gonna play. Every every year at the start of trots, I always say, one of my coaches always say, um, we're gonna take there's two guys in this gym that are guaranteed to make the team. The, and and those two guys are the best rebounder and the best defender. Right, the best rebounder, no matter how much he, he's, how, no matter if he if he shoots the ball sideways, if he can't dribble the ball, he will make the team. The best defender, if he can't if he can't do it, they will make the team. Those are the skills that 
we're taking the best available guy because we need the we need whoever is the best at those skills no matter what because even if it's not even if they're not going to play because of those other uh, deficiencies they're going to get the best out of everybody else at those specific skills in practice and and and, and just uh, in general so i think that's something that's very important to think about in terms of if you can impact the game in, in a way other than scoring uh, at such a high level there's there's a space for you on the basketball court i think that's the way it should be but at the same time we got to work with you as coaches okay and thank you for Coming into another episode, tuning into another episode of the Athletes Podcast. Um, we want to thank you for taking time out of your weekly, you know, day, whatever you're doing right there, wherever you're, however you're listening, whether you know in the car, at the house, whatever you're doing, however you're chilling. We just want to thank you for taking your time out to listen to us and make us a part of your weekly routine. Um, thank you again, John, for taking time out of your busy schedule, especially with all the episodes you be recording trying to hit those daily recordings and everything. We want to thank you for taking out the time to come on the show with all the um, technical difficulties and everything. Do you have anything to say before you, uh, before we head out? Of course, it was a pleasure coming on. I'm really excited to have met you guys. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've never really been asked so many, you know, really thought-provoking questions about the X's and O's part of basketball. So I'm really excited to have come on and shared all that with you guys. I really, really hope we can talk again soon. Yes, of course. I mean, I wish we had better conditions throughout this time. I know, like I said, I'm not feeling the best, so my voice keeps changing throughout the podcast. But yeah, most definitely hope everything goes well with your shows. I know you're doing that daily uploading. I know you're trying to prosper in the best way you can. I hope everything keeps going well with you and that you continue on your journey with your podcast and you mean nothing but success. But yeah, let's go ahead and say that as everybody already knows here, always, always, always remember to respect women, but most importantly, remember to respect yourself, and we out.